0: You think you know London? Well, guess again. There are so many incredible gems and hidden histories just waiting to be discovered. In this jam-packed series, we'll take you to every corner of the superb international city that is London. Visiting secret local haunts, meeting the people behind them and unpacking the history of London through their eyes. Hop in and take a ride with us in the London Black Cab and see this fantastic city in the fast lane. Today we're going to visit the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, an exclusive district in the west of London. It's home to some unique buildings, splendid architecture and exciting venues, and some of the most expensive property in London. To gain a greater insight into the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, I'm on my way to meet with Vanya Gay, a renowned Blue Badge tour guide. Vanya, Why have you brought me to this establishment to tell me about the history of Chelsea?
1: Well, because it has been here not just nearly 100 years, but it is still a family-run business. And there are not many of those still in London.
0: Ah, OK, because it also gets asked on the knowledge. Wars, (laughs) Harley-Davidson motorcycles. But I think there's a lot of stuff in Chelsea that's even older than that. Can you tell me a little
1: bit about it? Chelsea evolved from a small settlement from the Anglo-Saxon times. So we are talking about 9th century AD, and then from rural and a very small fishing village, because of course, okay. Chelsea was by the river. And then became a bit more popular when uh, Sir Thomas More moved to the area. He was chancellor to the King Henry VIII. Then we get into the 17th century, when Charles II comes to the throne and in 1660 he built king's road he could then go from Whitehall palace to hampton court palace and the road believe it or not was private until 1830s
0: really so and the king's
1: road was a private road to yes the 1830s? you need a token a metal token with the picture of uh, the head of the king on it to go through it the 19th century if we move on then uh became a home for writers, for artists, for radicals. Blue Packs is a wonderful way of triggering your memory because they connected the building with someone who has lived or worked there. So we had a uh, suffragette, Sylvia Pankhurst living here, writers such as um, Oscar Wilde, George Eliot, and artist Turner. Turner loved being by the river and uh, Rosetti, member of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and more recently, Big Jagger. By the river for artists, it is a wonderful place to be. The whole area really developed thanks to two families. And we see, as you walk along or drive along Chelsea, uh, two names a lot, uh, Hans Sloan and Cadogan. Hans Sloan was a physician to three monarchs, and wonderful man, and he left the core of his wonderful, vast collection to the British Museum. okay. His younger daughter married within the Cadogan family to one of the Cadogan uh, children, and then they started developing the area, and so that's why you see Cadogan a lot. The King's
0: Road is synonymous with shopping. Can you tell me something about that, how that happened and why it's so, do you think?
1: Yes, we cannot uh, mention King's Road without going back in time uh, in the 60s, when the first boutique in London opened here by Mary Quant. She rebelled about the, against the establishment uh, of a stiff way of dressing and invented the uh, hot pants and mini skirt. <laughs> and then we move a decade later, we had uh, Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren starting the punk movement. If we move away from King's Road, we get into Portobello Market, it is the most famous market. It is the largest antiques market in the country. And that the other days you'd find secondhand books or secondhand items. What's the
0: story behind the fact that it's now the sort of the royal borough of Kensington, Chelsea? When do they sort of merge together to become one district? In
1: 1689, when King William moved to the area, then Kensington Gardens was developed around the palace and uh, Queen Victoria was born in that palace and lived there until she was 18. And after her death, Kensington received the name of royal Kensington. And in 1965, Kensington and Chelsea were married as Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Chelsea Royal Hospital is probably the most important building in Chelsea. Was founded by King Charles II in the late 1600s for uh, soldiers after they retired. And built by our great architect of that time, Sir Christopher Wren, famous among many other buildings so whoever lives there are called Chelsea pensioners. Right. And you recognize them immediately by their long scarlet coat which dates from the 1700s the design or the and the tricorn black hat. Um since 2009 they accept women now.
0: Oh do they? That's very interesting.
1: <laughs> it's extensive grounds within the Royal Hospital and the Chelsea Flower Show happens there since 1913 every year. It's for five days, and the first day is only special guests, such as the royal family.
0: Could you tell me something about the museums in Kensington? In
1: 1851, we had a great exhibition in London, and organized mainly one of the brains behind was Prince Albert. Over six million people attended and made a profit. And Prince Albert. With the Prophet bought eight, seven acres of land in an area now known as Albertopolis, and the idea was to build institutions and museums to educate the people. We have the Victorian Albert Museum, the largest artists and design museums of the world. We have the National History Museum and we have the Science Museum, seven floors of display, from steam engines to spacecrafts, and all free.
0: Thank you so much indeed for your Thank conversation. You, a pleasure. You've enlightened <laughs> so me. Next time I drive through Kensington and Chelsea, I'll see it from a completely different angle. My first stop today is with Head Gardener Nick Bailey
2: of Chelsea Physic Garden. Chelsea Physic Garden has been here since 1673 and it was established by the Society of Apothecaries to train young physicians in the identification and use of medicinal plants. And one of the first uh, physicians to train here was Sir Hans Sloan who went off and made his fortune, returned to London, bought the borough of Chelsea including the Physic Garden and decided to rent it back to the apothecaries in perpetuity. And it was written in such a clever way that that agreement still stands to this day. So we still pay a peppercorn rent to his descendant, Lord Cadogan, uh, of £5 a year. Every plant grown in the garden is useful in some way or another, and that's part of the decree laid down by Sir Hans Sloan. And we focus on medicinal plant species, both historic and, uh, and plants that are used today. So We've got a useful garden and that has plants associated with perfumery, with the arts, with dyes, with fabrics, with housing, with science and research, with hygiene and cosmetics, with land restoration. The primary remit of the garden has always been education, so for 340 years it's been focused on teaching people about plants, which we hope to continue to do today. We run a a walks, talks and workshops programme year-round in the garden uh, and we aim to engage as broad an audience as possible, so from kids of four years old up to adults and retirees. And we also have some active research at the garden, so we work with Queen Charlotte University and several other universities, so we've got ongoing uh, research programmes with them. We grow about 5,000 uh, plant species in the garden and they cover about 210 different countries from around the world. So we strive to create all these different growing environments, so we have a, a tropical growing space, we have a, we have a desert growing space, uh, we have a large cool fernery which deals with many of the sort of uh, damp or moisture or high humidity uh, loving plants. Perhaps the most extraordinary plant in the garden is a grapefruit which fruits for us year round. It's totally unprotected uh, and produces a, a reasonable edible fruit. It's got a slightly thicker pith than you normally would have in a tropically grown grapefruit and that's because it protects itself from the cold by producing that extra thick skin sitting in the the heart of the garden is our pond rockery and it's said to be the oldest rock garden in Europe it's quite extraordinary and we have a collection of Mediterranean plants growing all the way around it Uh, and the stones which make it up really quite interesting some of them are a larval rock from Iceland which the uh, famed plant collector Joseph Banks used as ballast in his boat uh, on on a trip there and then donated them to the garden I think perhaps the most extraordinary thing in there, however, is uh, pieces of carved stone from the, the original Tower of London, so it's quite a special thing. The garden overall really is perhaps London's best-kept secret. It's tucked away behind uh, walls, almost four acres of of garden, and uh, people can pass it by for years without knowing that there's this lush, leafy oasis uh, hidden away behind the walls. And those walls actually are one of our huge advantages as, as a garden. They create an extraordinary microclimate, which means we're able to grow species here that uh, virtually the rest of the UK wouldn't be able to grow and so we have the advantages of the the heat island effect of London, our own walls, the thermals which come up from the river, the fact that the site is south facing and very free draining and it means we can grow plants from virtually every corner of the world.
0: the heart of Chelsea is Cadogan Hall. Famed for its excellent acoustics and luxurious surroundings it's the principal venue for the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. General Manager
3: Adam McGinley. Welcome to Cadogan Hall. We are just off Sloane Square, a stone's throw from King's Road. Cadogan Hall actually started life as a church uh, way back in 1907. Could you tell me something about the architecture of
0: the building? Because obviously, having been a church, I'm wondering how that affects the acoustics.
3: In the days of it being a church, it actually had congregations of up to 1,600 people. There are no sightline issues at all in the hall, so everybody gets a perfect view. And it's in a Byzantine period. Uh, The stained glass is all original. Um, The gentleman that put it in was a a Danish nobleman who cut his teeth in Tiffany's in New York. Of course nowadays with the modern requirements of a concert hall we have had to install lots of technology which is hidden but architecturally we didn't have to do a huge amount to the hall to get it into, uh, into a place of a, a leading concert hall. The hall has become uh, noted for its natural acoustic uh, and is particularly good for large scale orchestral, chamber and choral music.
4: Are there any
1: annual or seasonal events that happen year on year?
3: We will have a large-scale international orchestral season and they include orchestras from all over the world. We are home to the BBC Proms. So, of course, in London, BBC Proms is the world's largest classical orchestral festival. And the main thrust of those concerts are at the other hall around the corner, the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, However, we stage the chamber concerts. So every Monday uh, throughout uh, the end of July, Uh, going all the way through August and September. We have chamber music concerts, lunchtime concerts. We also have a very lively and active contemporary season or a strand, including the London Jazz Festival, which is a series of 10 events through November. Also during August, running parallel to our proms, we have children's shows. We just had six weeks of when the tiger came to tea, um, through to a very strong choral series. So there's always a lot to choose from. The Cadogan Hall has a unique history but it's actually privately owned and very few concert halls in the world are privately owned and it was always their ambition to diversify and develop the cultural landscape of Chelsea. But we form part of a cultural hub which includes the Royal Court Theatre, uh, the Chelsea Physic Club, the Saatchi Gallery and together we represent the cultural landscape of Chelsea. How easy is it for people to get tickets for performances at the Cadogan Hall? We are very busy, I'm delighted to say. With the huge amount of performances that we have, we attract people not just from London and the UK, but from Europe and further afield too. Most people do book online and they book in advance um, to secure the best seats. However, if you're in London and you're in our area, do swing by and I'm sure we'll be able to hopefully get you in.
0: A minute's walk from Cadogan Hall is one of London's principal theatre venues.
4: My name's Vicky Featherston, I'm the Artistic Director of the Royal Court Theatre and we're here in the basement of the Royal Court Theatre, actually under Sloane Square itself. The Royal Court Theatre was built in the late 1800s. It was uh, at the end of the King's Road, where it is now. But the Royal Court Theatre as we know it started in 1956 when um, the first ever Artistic Director, George Devine, took over the building and decided that he wanted to find a whole new generation of playwrights um, to be telling stories about Britain and the rest of the world today. The Royal Court's called the Writers' Theatre because at its heart are the playwrights. Um, The first play that was ever put on was a very famous play now called Look Back in Anger by John Osborne. And what we try to do is to find playwrights from all over Britain but also the rest of the world and to give them the platform to tell us stories about the world we live in, to entertain us, to shock us, to challenge us. So it's always as the playwright at the centre. We're very lucky at the Royal Court Theatre. We have a very beautiful and intimate stage, and we managed to entice extraordinary actors to work here. There are some other really well-known plays that started here that have kind of gone on to change our lives in different ways. most famously probably Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, which started in our tiny theatre upstairs, an experimental sort of night of musical. We have two theatres, one which is a smaller theatre upstairs, um, which seats 90 people, Um, that often is quite site-specific. We turn the whole auditorium into a a kind of space. Um, It's less conventional. And then downstairs we have a very beautiful sort of chocolate box theatre, which seats 400 people. So we have a real range of work over the year that goes on. Saved by Edward Bond um, was a very famous play that was on here in the late 60s and it was when there was still censorship, when the Lord Chamberlain still had to read every single play. Um, So um, it was as a result of plays at the Royal Court that censorship uh, in Britain was changed because the Royal Court made the statement to say we have to be allowed to put on stage what we want. So Saved is a very famous play about a group of young men um, in late 60s England who have no money and have no prospects. And it's about sort of poverty, but it caused a real shock. People wanted to close the theatre down. An important part of what we do is um, our education work. We, we, we have a lot of writers' groups, we invite people in to come and try out writing and to become playwrights. Um, but we also work hugely in schools with young people, um, we have a youth theatre, we have a young court programme, we call it. And One of the most exciting things we do is we go into schools around London um, and work with eight-year-olds. They write plays and then we produce those plays professionally um, and take them back into the schools and the eight-year-olds see their work done by professional actors which they love. I'm believing that if we can give them certain kinds of experiences, they can also change us. Um, and as the Royal Court is always thinking about what are the stories of tomorrow, what are the new ways of telling theatre, it's really important that we have this kind of engine room of young people. So we have a youth board, we have a youth theatre, we bring in young writers between the ages of 16 and 24 to write plays for us. What's also important is that we have a strand of work called The Big Idea, because people kind of love, especially in London, people seem like they really enjoy coming to have extra talks and workshops. Um, so around any show we'll explore some of the themes and ideas of the show and we get experts like neurologists or scientists or whoever to come and kind of expand on the ideas um, and our audiences seem to love that. So. You can come and see those free if you get a ticket for the show, or if you just like the idea of the talk itself, you can come and buy a ticket to see that. So we have a range of other activity going on um, throughout the year, and we have a bookshop that sells lots of all the plays you could possibly imagine, as well as books about theatre that you can't really get anywhere else. And it's wonderful if people come and actually buy the books from the bookshop itself, because of course, all the profits go back into the arts, which means that I can commission more young writers to keep changing theatre. And the most important thing for me is that this, all of this work, the work on stage and the work outside the theatre is as inclusive as possible so that everyone has access to it.
0: A nice place to eat in Chelsea, just alongside the river is the Painted Heron. It's famous amongst locals for its fine Indian cuisine.
5: My name is Yogesh Tata and I am the chef as well as the owner of the Painted Heron. The Painted Heron restaurant is on Cheney Walk in Chelsea, as you see close to the river. And there used to be a heron sitting on one of the houseboats when we were opening. In India there is a history with the bird as well, and it's a very popular bird to paint and this is an area where artists also lived. And we didn't want to keep a traditional Indian name, and we opened the Painted Heron in 2002. Because we've been here so long, it's we're like a Chelsea institution. When we started off, it was experimental Indian food, uh, which is fortunately now mainstream. We try to keep things simple, Not complicated recipes. We try to keep things fresh. And the spices, those are the keys. So we grind our own fresh spices. And there is a lot of emphasis on local ingredients, fresh ingredients, and seasonal ingredients. So we try to keep it as healthy as possible. And that's why we feel we're slightly different from, uh, say, a curry house. And uh, I think that is the basic reason why people keep coming back to us. There are two, three dishes which have stayed on the menu for now 15 years. One is our lamb chops, which are, you know, very famous, and my personal favorite as well. And then there is one, our own version of chicken tikka masala, which also has been on the menu forever. When we started off pairing wines with Indian food was something very new, and we took it very seriously. For 15 years, we've been working to see which wines, go best with spicy Indian food. And uh, I think we have a very good wine list. It's a constantly evolving list. We have more than 100 wines from all over the world, including now India, because India now is producing decent wines. So the idea behind Painted Haran is to do everything on the table and on the plate. And that's why the decor we keep neutral, not necessarily Indian, but we do have a lot of local artist paintings hanging in our walls. So what I'm really excited about is this grill, which is like an oven uh, which fires on charcoal and uh, which I believe is certainly better than our traditional tandoor for grilling because it retains all the moisture in itself. And we hope to again be an example for other Indian restaurants to follow and start using the Josper grill.
0: What a great little find in the heart of Chelsea. Definitely worth hopping in a black cab for a delicious curry. Moving north to Kensington is a house whose exterior belies its extravagant interior. Senior
6: curator Daniel Robbins. Well, Leighton House was built by the artist Frederick Leighton. He started it in the mid-1860s and he lived here for 30 years. And over that 30 years, he was almost constantly embellishing or extending the house in some way. So it started relatively modest, but by the time he died in 1896, it was referred to as a private palace of art because he'd created this extraordinary environment and it was crammed full of the collections of art that he'd, he'd gathered and amassed. The outside of the house, exterior, is very unassuming. You would have really no idea until you walk through the front door of what you're going to discover. And inside, you find this amazing suite of rooms that were designed by him, working closely with his friend, the architect George Aitchison, and then arranged through those rooms are uh, uh, paintings, sculpture, uh, carpets, furniture, all as closely to how he had designed and presented the house as, as is possible. Leighton's career had started in 1855 when he sent a picture as a complete unknown to the Royal Academy for the summer exhibition. And Prince Albert um, suggested to Queen Victoria that she should buy it, so she in fact bought his debut picture, which was an amazing start to his career. And he really was on good terms with Queen Victoria throughout his life. Uh, She visited the house here in 1859 and she recorded coming... To see him in her diary. So, sort of key moments in his life were connected in different ways to the royal family. And when he died, um, Queen Victoria gave her personal blessing that he should be buried in St. Paul's Cathedral, and that was a sort of really a national event. One of the most extraordinary additions that was made to the house was what we refer to as the Arab Hall. So, this was built at the end of the 1870s. And it really seems to have been built to accommodate the collection of tiles that Leighton had collected, most of them coming from Damascus, but there were other Turkish tiles involved. And he'd visited these regions and been collecting material from them and had something like a thousand tiles, and most of them dating from the end of the 16th century to the beginning of the 17th century. So he seems to have built the Arab Hall as a means of displaying and housing that collection of tiles and to show them in a very evocative, atmospheric setting. The centrepiece, really, of the house was this huge painting studio that was built. It was a very heavily furnished um, and imposing uh, reception space as well as being a working room. Partly it was to impress, so if you came to call on him, you had the experience of entering this extraordinary house, climbing the grand staircase, and then entering this huge studio where he would be at work and would would greet you. So part of it was to show what a serious artist he was, but there were practical reasons why it had to be so big, because Leighton often was working on very large pictures, so you simply needed a big room in which you could work on it. When Leighton lived here he had a very diverse collection of ceramics and textiles and furniture all arranged through these rooms and very sadly all of that was sold at Christie's in the summer after he died and was dispersed all around the world and we know how far it was dispersed because in 1997 we were contacted by somebody in Melbourne, Australia who had just bought a cabinet and inside the drawer was the Leighton sale catalogue from 1896. So they wrote to the museum and sent a photograph of this cabinet saying, does it have any connection with Leighton House? And of course in all the photographs of the rooms when Leighton lived here, it's immediately recognisable. And in the end, it wasn't presented back to us, but we were given the opportunity of acquiring it. So that particular piece of furniture has literally gone all around the world and come right back to exactly where it was in 1896. We know a great deal about what was originally here, and so we've been able to borrow things and find facsimiles and similar things, and particularly he was interested in ceramics. He had a huge number of iznik and um, blue and white china, and so we know in many ways, in fact, that even the decoration and the form of the house, he, he conceived it to display particular objects and groups of objects, and definitely in the dining room downstairs, That was where he principally had his collection of plates of ceramics on display. It was almost like a little museum. Each room had a character and a theme of what was being displayed within it. The first exhibited piece of sculpture he produced was in 1877, so he was already 47 years old. But the few pieces he did exhibit had a lot of influence on a younger generation of Sculptors, And so in the room here, in the silk room, is one of his sculptures called Needless Alarms, which uh, shows a girl being needlessly alarmed by a frog that's standing at her, at her feet. But it was really essentially as a painter that his career was, was based. We do a lot of education work. We run every year an annual school's art exhibition, which is open to every school in, uh, in the borough. And then we have visits from schools uh, to see the Arab Hall and to do art activities within the house. And it's also a great way of introducing the idea of Victorian life and Victorian culture and the place that artists had in that world. And the fact that this house doesn't in any way really conform to what many people think of a struggling artist living in a a garret somewhere. This uh, suggests a very different place that artists were able to enjoy when they were successful at that time.
0: What a magnificent church, which I'm sure has a fascinating history.
7: I'm meeting Rector Brian Lethard to find out more. We're standing in St Luke's Church in Sydney Street, just off the famous King's Road, and it's the parish church of Chelsea, and we're surrounded by beautiful gardens and children's playground. We know that we have between five and 700 people a week who come into church, not to services, but just to come in. St Luke's is a major part in the life of Chelsea, and in fact, our, our strap line, our slogan is St Luke's and Christchurch's putting heart and soul into, into Chelsea. St Luke's was built as the new parish church of Chelsea between 1820 and 1824 to replace the old parish church that had been there from doomsday, 1086, uh, because it was believed to be no longer big enough to house the growing population. So when this church was built, uh, the architect was a man called James Savage, uh, and he favoured the reintroduction of the Gothic style, so it was called Neo-Gothic. It's the tallest uh, nave roof of any parish church in, uh, in London and uh, with a very heavy um, debt to King's College, Cambridge, with all these flying buttresses holding the church up outside. Um, So there's a real sense in which he was trying to reintroduce a much earlier medieval style, but with the technical abilities of the 19th century. It was the pattern in the 19th century that on the whole, uh, the great and the good would hire, they'd rent pews, and the nearer the front you were in church, the higher the rent. And the domestic servants Uh, would be upstairs in the galleries and it's only a few years ago that actually the signs were painted out in this church that said domestic servants female in one direction and domestic servants male in the other direction so while the masters and mistresses were worshipping Almighty God down here there was quite a lot of um, winking going on between male and female domestic servants in the galleries upstairs. This church has uh, played host to all sorts of events in its history the civic service for the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea's uh, marking of the Queen's 90th birthday we had it here Uh, and the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester were here to mark that some of the the early scenes of um, Empire of the Sun here and also 100 World Dalmatians was filmed here Uh, And for those of you who know this sort of thing and and are addicted to it, uh, quite a few of the episodes of Made in Chelsea uh, have been filmed uh, either knowingly or unknowingly here. But even right back in its earliest days, in 1836, uh, a soon-to-be-very famous author called Charles Dickens got married to Catherine Hogarth here. And we have a copy of their marriage certificate downstairs. Um, which is part of an ongoing exhibition that we have about Dickens' life and work. He was married here just two days after the first uh, uh, episode of Pickwick Pake was was published. So I think um, he married as a sign of things uh, looking good in the future, although the personal life, as we've seen in other films, uh, of Dickens was somewhat complex. Um, He married, in fact, a minor. She was underage when he married her. So interestingly, the marriage certificate states that she married with the express consent of her father uh, because she was not owed enough to uh, give consent herself. If you look at the front uh, of the church, the east end of the church, the altar still in the same place, the uh, commandments and the Lord's Prayer and the Creed are still in the same place. We're lucky enough to host the chapel of the uh, Punjab Frontier Force um, which is in our side chapel and which we use every day. Uh, and it's, it's a great delight to use it, but also a, a painful reminder at the same time, because if you look carefully at what's there, it reminds us of the places we still hear about in the news. A daily reminder to us of the relevance of not only past imperial walls, but today's conflict in, in our world. We're lucky to have a really fantastic organ here in St Luke's. It was expanded and expanded in the 19th century and then in 1932 completely reworked by a famous English organ builder called Compton. He was commissioned uh, to make this the prototype for the huge organ in BBC Broadcasting House that was completed the year after this, but built on the model of St Luke's. So it's a very, very much, uh, uh, you've heard it here first, BBC came second.
0: My next stop is to meet renowned florist Judith Blacklock. And I'm hoping she might even teach me how it's done.
8: Here in my flower school in Belgravia, Knightsbridge, in Kinnerton Place South, a cosy little muse, just minutes from the busy traffic of Knightsbridge, and of course, all the designer shops. I've been here for 16 years, but prior to this, many years ago, it was a garage, and then before that, it was stables for horses. Well, I'd been teaching flowers for many years uh, in colleges and in, in barns, where I live and I was offered these premises and I thought it would be a most wonderful place to continue my career as flowers, but to teach actually here in Knightsbridge, which is the most beautiful location and everyone just feels a sense of joy when they come walking down the mews and they see the flowers and then it's just a pleasure to teach them as well. I've arranged flowers for many venues around the world. Here in London, I've arranged flowers at Kensington Palace, I have arranged for the livery companies, uh, for the guild hall, for celebrities, royalties. It's been a pleasure to do them all. I've traveled extensively across the world to the Americas. Um, I've been many times to Atlanta and worked with the garden clubs there. I've been to Turkey, I've been to Canada, and I've recently just returned from two weeks in China, where I was lecturing at the university there. And here at the school, I teach people from around the world. It's a very international school. And at the last class I gave, I had nine different nationalities and 13 people. So it was great. I run courses for everyone. As long as they've got a passion for flowers, it's easy to teach them. So if people come and they want to have a career in flowers, I can teach that in two weeks, every aspect from the practical side to the business side. And for people who just want half a day or a day of pleasure, they come and they learn and take away some wonderful designs which David created. It's so easy to teach because people have that passion, they want to learn, and so it's very easy to convey that material over to them so that they can do it successfully themselves. I think one of the most important pleasurable parts of teaching flowers is that they how much pleasure people get from doing it. They come here and they think they're not creative but they love flowers. And it's being able to transmit my knowledge so that they go away confident that they can succeed with whatever they do.
0: Judith was kind enough to take on her biggest challenge, namely teaching me to arrange flowers.
8: What we're going to create is a table centerpiece, So it needs to be looking good from all the way around, 360 degrees. And you're aiming All the stems from the very heart of the foam that you can see. When you're doing a design like this, lift it up from time to time and look at it so that your eye is level with the rim. And just check that you haven't put all the plant material in the top bits, top two thirds, and ignored the bottom third.
0: I'm enjoying it immensely, and as I say, the the smell of the rosemary has almost made my day.
8: So I'm going to take um, a red rose. And just place it dead centre. I always suggest you place about halfway down or slightly lower. And you see what a beautiful emphasis that gives there.
0: It's quite addictive, this, once you get started, isn't Isn't it? it?
8: (laughs) You you lose yourself in it. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole world outside just become important. It's, It's...
0: it's very it's therapeutic. Is. I think it is. And the other thing is, you start getting carried away because you realise you're actually creating something.
8: Yeah. And it doesn't matter that it's not going to last forever. It's just the pleasure of the moment. Yeah. By keeping them all at the same length, you end up at something really cohesive. And keeping to the outline, created with the first placements of stems you get those proportions just just do that just like that yeah
7: i
0: can see already this i can see some places where it's disproportionate yeah. and then
8: yeah. keep turning I'll,
0: around i'll deal
8: with it just now what better job have i got than being a teacher when people can produce work like that after one lesson <laughs>
0: And after 90 minutes, here we are. I'm quite proud of that.